Well, my name is Carl Gully, and glad to get to be here with you on this amazing Father's Day. Happy Dad's Day, and uh, to all of you dads and granddads out there, my dad's watching at home. Love you, Dad, and honor you as an amazing friend in, in my life, and just thought that I might need to start by getting one thing clear, because I had two ladies over the course of three days come to me and say, so it seems like we have a long-standing tradition in the American church that on Mother's Day, we get all the ladies together and we adore them and champion them and tell them that there is nothing that they could do that is wrong on planet Earth. And at Father's Day, we just spank the tar out of all the dads. And so just wondered if you were planning on following along with that longstanding tradition. It's a great question. And dads, I just thought I would say, fear not. There is no paddle in my sermon for you today, all right? So you can lean in and uh, just no worries whatsoever. But dad, I do have a question for you, a question I think you ought to answer, and it's this, just quick reaction, just coming right out of your gut, just in your heart of, your heart of hearts, what do you believe God feels about you? I mean, maybe we could even just phrase it this way to take it a little bit deeper, what do you assume that God feels about you when you cross his mind? This is the thing I want to just kind of seep inside of us today and to go a little deeper in. It's also the reason I'd like to ask once again for all the dads and the granddads in the house to stand to your feet. Because normally at this time of, of the service, we'll say, let's all stand for the reading of scripture. But I just want the dads and the granddads to stand at this moment. And the reason is because we're going to read this scripture together. And my prayer is that it'll be like a seed that goes down inside of your soul, especially if you've even seen this verse before. And something today would click in a way that maybe it never has before. So dads, granddads, would you read this scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 along with me? One, two, three. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Thank you so much, gentlemen. You can, you can all take a seat. Now, several weeks ago, I had a chance to go fishing with some friends of mine. These are guys that have been in church their whole life, taking hits like the rest of us, but pretty good dudes. And as we sat down to take a little dinner break, I just said, guys, let's just think about this. As we speak, God is thinking about us, like we are coming across his mind. And and I just uh, wanted to ask you guys, what do you think he thinks about you? And instinctively, one of the guys goes, well, that is a scary thought. And I appreciated his honesty. And so I said, all right, well, so why would you say that's so scary? And he said, well, how could God not be so disappointed in me for the way that I've lived my life? Now, Contrast that with a group of ladies that I've been getting to know over the last six or seven months. Um, been going and doing some prison ministry recently. Jason and Jose have invited me in and, um, and went the first time and wanted to take my wife Blair back the second time. We walked in the second time and right when we did, there was a group of ladies in this library 
and we introduce ourselves to the first one, and she is working on something, and she informs us she is working on an assignment for her discipleship program she's in where she has to write her entire life story down, and she's just finished it. And we've known her all of 14 seconds, and she turns to my wife and says, Blair, would you like to read my life story? And Blair was like, I'd be honored. Well, I didn't read it. Blair read it, and then I moved on, and I met the rest of the ladies who were in the library And just like that, we're now being whisked away into the chapel for a time of worship. And they don't have a worship team like this with instruments. They actually bring a group of ladies up to the front, and they do sign language worship, and they sign through the songs. And on that evening, one of the songs they were singing was a song you probably know called The Goodness of God. And it's a a Bethel song, so a lot of us love to sing it because it's, um, All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so, good. so you, you know this song, and you can imagine how the Spirit of God's moving in the prison at that moment. We had the whole night, and it's, I mean, we're pretty touched by God in that night. And I go home, and Blair tells me afterward, she's like, Carl, that lady's story was heartbreaking. And it was something along the lines of like growing up in bars, and by the time she's 10 years old, she's been inappropriately touched by family. By 12, she is in prostitution by 14 she's doing drugs she has a a a child soon after that and Blair said if there's a group of people on the planet who have the right to say that all my life he has not been faithful and all my life he has not been good it is those ladies and yet they are standing there radiant faces in their white jumpsuits that I know they don't want, but it's a picture of redemption and glory as their hands are lifted and tears are streaming and they are smiling and they are singing, your goodness is running after, is running after me. And to think about the fact that they got it. And these two experiences just stood in stark contrast to me. It begs the question, what's the difference? One group basking in the love of God and the other group having a hard time receiving it. Both groups hearing the gospel, both groups responding to the gospel, but apparently both experiencing the gospel drastically differently. And I think it has to do with that question we all just asked. The reason I know is over the last year, everywhere I go, that's the question I ask people. If I'm in a life group, if I'm in a church, if I'm preaching there, if I'm, if I'm at my pause class, uh, youth camp this past week, I love being at youth camp, hungry teenagers going after God, come find me afterwards if you read 2 Timothy like I told you to do. Like, we had a, a blast. Wherever I go, I ask this question, and I've pretty much learned that when people are asked, just don't even think about it, just really quickly think about your shortcomings, your complexities, your sin. What is God's just lightning fast reaction to you? It typically involves a version of this. It involves a version of he's disappointed. And why would he not be? I mean, I've given him a lot of reason. I've not even been the person that I want to be. Or maybe it's not this. Maybe it's a different version of annoyed. Like God's up in heaven every day rolling his eyes like, Lord, the woman's 49 years old. How many more times do I have to tell her this? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's even more intense. He's angry. And again, you might get it because you're just like, I'm angry. I can't be the husband I want to be, the father I want to be, the the leader I want to be, the man of God I want to be. I'd be angry too if I were him. And when you get really honest, there's a different level of drastic answers sometimes that people say, "Um, he's ashamed of me. 
because the way I have lived is shameful. So they even get it, but it then begins to help us understand why we see God as somewhat distant. And I actually think that this is actually just kind of on top of what you're feeling. What you're feeling is actually probably one of two things that's underneath all of that. And it's something along the lines of, I'm just not doing enough of blank. And you fill in your blank. I'm just not doing enough prayer, Bible memorization. I'm not kind enough. I don't do enough quiet times. We just did a four-week evangelism series. Still haven't done it. I don't do enough of that stuff. And Or I'm not doing right. I'm not doing life right. I'm not doing parenting right. Not doing the spiritual life right. And some of us, if we're honest, we just would flip it and say, we've done it wrong and we've got the scars to show it. And so when these kind of questions are looping in our heads and these are the themes that we're playing, we're left to just go, so what do we do? So what we do is we go to church on Father's Day. And what you think I might do is just be like, but men, you are enough. Everybody just say it. I'm enough. Feel better? No, that's not going to make it out of the parking lot. You know why? Because you're not. And if you were, we would have all just asked you into our heart to save us from our sins. That's the gospel story. You see, the gospel story makes it very, very clear. You can't do enough, and you couldn't be enough. So what you tried to do is go get it right. You screwed it up even more. Because in and of yourself, that's what you do. And Jesus saw that and of his great love for you, he came to you. And if you don't remind yourself of this every day, then you will try to be enough and try to make it right in and of yourself. But the dad who understands the depths of the gospel will encounter a joy and a peace and a soul rest that he longs for. Now, To my remembrance, I don't think I have ever shown a sermon clip in the middle of one of my sermons. But we're about to kind of break that string here. And because what you're about to watch over the course of the next three minutes might be the most important thing you're going to watch today. Let's take a look. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. 
You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me and us. I get it, bro. I cried in the first service, cried in the second service. I, every time I watch it, I, I cry. Dads, today I'm not going to give you the four F's of fatherhood talk. You're not going to get the two things that if you do this, that will master your, your daddy techniques in, in the days ahead. Because we as fathers, we definitely need all the information that we can get in order to help us. But I'm convinced that more than we need information, what we need is to be able to know understand and appropriate the gospel to our lives. And then we need to be able to preach it to ourselves every single day so that we do not carry a weight on our back that we then try to make up in our performance as a dad or a husband or as a leader or as a friend or as a child of God that Jesus already accomplished on the cross. So with that being the case, let's turn to Luke chapter 15 and maybe some of these verses might actually look familiar to you. Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. Can we just stop right there? Do you read, hear what you just read? read? Like, the people attracted to Jesus are not the people you would have thought are attracted to Jesus. Well, this raises concerns among the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law and indignant they grumbled and they complained, saying, look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and he welcomes them all to come to him. I hope you understand that the audience of that day was intended so that you would know you're the audience of today. In response, Jesus gives them this illustration. Well, he actually gave them three illustrations about lost things being found. The third one is a story that we call the prodigal son. And I think it's kind of interesting that we call it the prodigal son because if you were to go in your dictionary and look up prodigal, you would think it means like wayward, rebellious, evil, whatever it is. But the late Tim Keller makes the comment that the word prodigal actually means lavish, extravagant. And he makes the point that we probably have mistitled this parable. 
Because the most lavish one in the story, the most extravagant one in the story was actually the father towards two, not one, two wayward sons. And so maybe we should start calling this the prodigal father. And in doing so, let's take a look at what happens with this father and with his sons. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so it starts. This is where it all begins, where our independence begins and gospel story, part one, three words we've all said. I got this. Like, I know what's best. I see my Boston friends over here. All set, right? All set, right? That'd be Boston words. Like, this is something that two-year-olds say. Don't help me. I got this. And don't you wish we grew out of that? We're all still trying to say, no, I got this. I can make this work. How's that working for us, everybody? Now, dads, lean in a little bit. Pretend you've never heard this story before. And a son is asking his dad for like everything. What do you think that dad's going to do? What would you do? If he just said, and and can I have everything? Would it be this? The rest of verse 12? So he divided his property between them. I mean, that seems pretty quick and dumb. (laughs) Dads, we don't do that. Do you just give them everything they want when they want it? What, What dad does that? I mean, If I'm talking to this dad, I'm like, hey, you really missed a moment. As dads, we all know the code. There's a code called hold those three lectures in your back pocket. You're going to need them one day. And you pull it out when dum-dum does that. And that's what he writes about in your Father's Day card. Thanks, Dad, for saving me from what I just about did. My, My son was in the first service, and he was like, Dad, remember when me and my best friend Alden Abshire, like we planned on how we were going to go to our dads, and we told him, can we go to Colorado to work for the summer in a concession stand? (laughs) And I died laughing. I thought, he thought that was going to work. I was like, a concession stand? We got that down the street. He's like, I know, but it's not Colorado. I was like, well, do they pay good? I don't think they pay minimum wage. No, you're not doing that. Like I've got a great lecture I could give about why we don't do dumb things like that, right? It just, it just kind of makes sense. I don't give him what he wants. And what if he said, dad, can I go run a concession stand? By the way, can I have everything you own before I go? <laughs> Nothing in me is going to go, so I will divide my property between my children. Nothing in me <laughs> is going to do this. So what does it actually make sense that he does this? Unless... Jesus is trying to make a point that love does some pretty wild and confounding things sometimes. And he's making a point, you're loved so much that you're actually welcome to leave home. So he divided his property between them. The Greek actually here is, so he gave his life to them. And then we see the following verse, verse 13 Tells us a little bit more. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Well, no real surprise there, right? I mean, that's where the lecture goes. Do this, that'll end up happening. We're not shocked that he would do that. 
And actually, we shouldn't be shocked because we do that. Gospel story part two, that after we've come face to face with unconditional love, we go in search of it. He is looking in the eyes of radical 24-7 unconditional love and says, can I, can I get all your stuff and can I go? I mean, I made the joke about Colorado and a concession stand. This wasn't a joke. The only way you get an inheritance is if your dad dies. So he's basically saying, I just kind of wish you were dead. This is, this is painful. And yet he looks in the eyes of unconditional love and he goes and searches for it. One of my favorite authors of this, of this day is, of these days more recently has been a man named Henry Nowen. You may have known him since gone to be with the Lord, priest and psychologist, philosopher. And he has this to say about this story. As long as we live within the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to futile quests in the distant country, leading us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And yet, the search is on regardless. And unconditional love is letting him go. Luke chapter 15, verse 14 continues our story. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, You've heard the story before. You probably heard a lot of the talk around Jews and pigs and how that was not something that would have been desirable in that day. And that's, that's actually very, very true. But I want you to see it through a different lens. I want you to notice something here. That he's doing what we all do when we get busted. We actually go and try to figure out how to make it all better. He's trying to earn the money back so that he can go to his dad and be like, well, I don't have all of it, but I got some of it. I mean, this is the next part of all of our gospel story. We realize we screwed up, so we try to right the ship ourselves, hoping to God that it all works out and that we don't have the scars to show for it, right? Am I, am I the only one that has tried to do this in their life? I mean, I'm thinking of high school, sophomore year, computer class. Teacher leaves the room. I stood up to tell the whole class a story. In classic gully form, you have to be standing and acting everything out. And I grabbed a chair for this one point to go like this to tell the story. And then he threw the chair. It slipped and it nailed the computer keyboard and letters just went flying like lava out of a volcano. On point. I didn't, I didn't call a meeting. On point. It's, in, it's inside of me. Elmer's glue from the teacher's desk and tape. And I began to put together all of these little boxes back onto the board. And my friends, the best people in the world, formed a wall around me. So when the teacher walked in, he couldn't see me furiously doing arts and crafts. And we made it. The class was over. We got out of the class and I thought I did it. I broke it, fixed it. He'll never know the difference. Until I went to class the next day. Hey, uh, Gully, can I ask you a question? Sure, anything. 
did you just decide to throw our keyboard up against the wall? And I'm looking at him shocked, like, what are you talking about, you know? And I look over at it, and I'm like, it really does look like Scrabble vomited. And it just was like all like this. And in my mind, it's like, what? You know, just, you know, just, I did everything in my best power to try to right this ship. He'll never know the distance, and it's all going to be okay. We all do this, even in our spiritual life. And it's starting to click, and I hope it's starting to click for you now, but I can't change myself. I can't create my own resurrection. I can't just be better. I just can't get this to, to happen, which is why the next verse, those first words in the next verse are so important. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I don't know how many times I've read this story. I've preached this story a whole lot. I have never noticed this verse in this capacity before. I looked at that and I thought, where do you see repentance here? He's not truly repenting. He's truly what? Starving. Like he's like, you know what? What can I do to get back home and have enchiladas? Like he, this you don't see any like weeping and gnashing of teeth here in this guy's story. So if the dad is standing behind listening to his mental processing, he'd be like, hey, <laughs> heard that. And until you can get your actions together, you can't come home. But who's telling the story? Yeah, this is a good place in church to practice the Christian answer. Jesus, that's right. Jesus is telling the story. What's Jesus doing on planet Earth? Revealing what the Father is like which seems to be he'll take any motivation under heaven to get you to come back to his loving arms. You went to, the ch to church to pick up the girl? Come on. You went to church to pick up the guy? Come on. You heard we do giving day at Antioch. Come on. You know, like Jesus will do whatever and you'll get there and the girl won't ever, that would never work. And the boy definitely won't see you. And the giving day is not gonna happen on the Sunday you show up and God's like, <laughs> got you there. You know, he'll do whatever it takes to bring you into his loving arms and to get you to freedom. This is Jesus telling this story. I'm not making this stuff up. And this is what is so, the thing you need to remember, we're still right in the middle of a guy who's trying to rehearse a speech. The speech you and all, I have all rehearsed when we screwed everything up and I got to figure out how do we get out of this one? Verse 18, okay. I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. Okay, that good. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then he's going to say it over and over and over and over again. One version, the NRSV says, not make me like, just treat me forever, basically, like one of your servants. Okay, now this just begs the question, why are you going through all this? Just go, Dad, you know what? Bummer, lost it all. Will you forgive me? And you would think that because you live in a Western context. But Jesus is speaking to people in an Eastern context. To a, to a young person in an Eastern context, earning a parent's approval and their delight, it rivals every other aim in life. So he is saying, as a son, he is saying, what every listener in Jesus' day would have known. This son's going, I know I'll never get your approval. I know I won't receive your honor. 
would you just let me in the door and I will work back what I owe you? Again, this is part of the gospel that many people live in every day. Just forgive me and get into heaven. That's enough. And, and I'll just spend my life sacrificing for you to make up the gap. It's a, it's a framework of shame and honor. Very prevalent in that Middle Eastern context. And I would think it's actually, I would say it's more middle, uh, prevalent in our world as well. If you were here in December, I did a series and I told you guys, if you would have asked me a couple of years ago if I deal with shame, I would have said, no, it's not my deal. That's for people who have really low self-esteem issues, and I pray for them a lot. That's just not my gig. And then you go on a sabbatical, and you're like, it's my only gig. Wow, okay, didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, as a dad, I would have said, I gotta, I'm angry all the time. i got to work on that. As a leader, I'm anxious all the time. i got to work on that. To me, with a therapist who was like, what if I told you that all of that grows out of shame? I was kind of dumbfounded. I'm starting to, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I still am, still letting God do this work in me. And I was really blessed by one lady. Her name is Eleanor Stump, very celebrated author and professor. And she writes extensively about shame. And she notes that guilt and shame correlate to two different aspects of love. Boiled down, love at one level, I want what's good for you. At another level, and that's not enough because I want union with you. I want our relationship to work. And so what Stump is trying to make the point is that, 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 that love, after it does those things, when you experience guilt, it's over here in this first camp. I've wronged you, and now I'm concerned that you no longer want my good. Actually, you might actually be displeased with me at best or want to punish me at worst, okay? And that's where I live. Shame lives over on this side of the camp. And it correlates to that union piece. And basically it fears that union is not possible because either I have done something or worse, have become unwantable or unlovable. Therefore union, it's never really going to happen. So what do you do with that? Well, here's what you need to know. Stump makes this point. I love it. Guilt can be forgiven. And I think that's good news for especially us as dads. We need to know our guilt can be forgiven. We can be confess our sin. And it, our sin was atoned for at the cross as well as our shortcomings and struggles. And, and so the things that we have said or wish we would have said or didn't say or all that stuff, all that guilt that's there, like Vincent talked about at our prayer time in the middle, that can be forgiven. But shame can't be. Shame can't be forgiven because it speaks to something much deeper. It hits at a soul level where I feel rejected because at a soul level, I live in a sense of dishonor. So guilt can't be, guilt can be forgiven, but shame must be healed. And the question is then begged, well, how do we do that? And I wish that we could just say, come up here and push this button and it'll be gone. It's a little bit of a deeper work and a longer work. But Stump says that there's two ways primarily that shame is healed. The first is that someone close to you who knows you at your best and at your worst still deems you acceptable. Like 
Like they, this is not like your mom who's like, do I look good? Yeah. Do I, no, do I, do I look good? Mom, my clothes are inside out. Yeah, but you look great. And this isn't your dad. Dad, do I look good? Yes. Dad, you didn't look at me. I know, but you look great. Like it's neither one of those. It's the marriage of those. No, I actually see everything, good, bad, and ugly, and you are still acceptable to me. And I, I just would say, you know, Vincent just said he celebrated 30 years. Um, we just celebrated 25 years of marriage this past week. My wife Blair and I did. So we're in second place to Blair and Tanya um, this week. And, I, and I'll just say that for me, Blair has been a, a picture of the gospel. Because the last couple of years, y'all have heard in some of my sermons, it, it's just been a little darker. Been a, it, was, it, was, it was a little tougher. But I was preaching somewhere a few months ago. And I remember I came, she was there, came home. Wasn't anything special, just preached, you know, come home. And I walk in the door. And Blair takes my stuff out of my hands and she puts it on the table. She put her hands on my shoulders and she said, you are a world-class man. And I was like, can you say that again? (laughs) You are a world-class man. I was like, it wasn't that good of a sermon. That's not what I'm saying. And Blair knows the worst of me. She has to live with the worst of me. In fact, I've told her all the time, you can't ever leave me. I've spent 25 years deceiving you into thinking I'm an okay guy. I don't have enough grace or time to deceive anybody else, so I need you to stick around. (laughs) Eleanor Stump's making the point, yeah, it's that person who's seen the best and the worst and deems you acceptable where the healing begins. This son is about to learn that lesson as we're going to see in verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This has long been one of my favorite verses in all of scripture because the picture you have is this this guy just dirty and filthy and he's, he's, he's coming home and he's looking down, shame has lowered his head and he's practicing this shame-induced apology. That's what is dominating his thoughts. So he doesn't even hear this like pounding of a father who is coming towards him and it totally interrupts the speech going on in his head to lavishly, extravagantly show affection on him. And it's crazy to me because He's not a wartime hero. He is a sin-stained pig babysitter who has train-wrecked the family name. He got that from the prodigal father. How in the world can that be? That's what love does. If you go look at the gospel story part four, here it is. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that what? Whoever. And I know I'm leaning into the dads and granddads. Everybody in the room, you all get to be a part of whoever. Watching online, you're whoever. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse, you probably need to memorize it if you don't have it. For God did not send his son into the world to do what you think he would do. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world through him. And he's just trying to give you this picture of a God who didn't come to condemn the world. He came to all of you pig babysitters who have train wrecked the spiritual family name and are sin stained. And he's trying to show you, and that's what I do. 
That's the best part of the story. I mean, that's actually not the best part. What I'm about to say is the, next, the best part. It's just kind of, it's mind-blowing. Because again, let's just think about it. What do we believe is God's natural inclination to our complexity, to our sin, to our shortcomings? The way we answer that question indicates whether we believe what we just read or not. And you and I need to make a decision today. At some point in our life, we have to decide if Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Messiah, we're going to follow Him. We also have to decide He either loves like that or He doesn't. There's no like middle ground, good days and bad days. The same yesterday and forever is the case. But if you believe God's natural inclination to you is neutral at best, repelled at worst, which depending on the day, we can go there, which is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. If we believe that, then the reason is, is because we respond that way to complexity and sin and shortcomings. So we overlay our character and our responses onto Jesus. But the scripture reveals he's the exact opposite of us. Thank you, God. And that's the beauty of the gospel story. I love what author Dane Ortland has to say about this, that the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. In Ortland, I would even just expand that. That's the cumulative arc of the entire scripture. That is from Genesis to Revelation. That is a God who watched his children in the garden fall away and then go walking in the cool of the day and say, where are you? All the way up to Jesus coming, looking for blind people and sick people and lepers and unclean people and dead people and complex people and religious uptight people and sin-stained folks. I mean, in this story, fast forward, for those of you who know it, there's other, another son He comes in, hears the celebration, and refuses to be a part of it. He has now dishonored his father as well in a culture that does not value dishonor. And what does the father do? Goes out to him. It's it's just, this is not the way I work, people. I don't need to be a pastor. Maybe this is why it's taken me so long. Like, I'm just now catching the gospel. And you might be going, aren't you an elder here? Like, isn't that elder 101? Like, do they test y'all on that? Yes, but left to myself, I will jump right back into that trap and try to make up that gap on my own without reminding myself it's not possible. It's already been filled. That's the cumulative story of scripture. God keeps moving toward us and not away. Now, let me just, I don't want to interrupt his very rehearsed speech. He's actually worked hard on it. Let's give him a shot, okay? The son said to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Question, is he right or is he wrong? Both. He has sinned against heaven and he has sinned against his earthly father. But the mistake that he is making is that he is linking his sin to God's approval or lack of it. So he is making the conclusion for God that I don't 
deserve anymore to be called your son. And you can make a case definitely that he doesn't deserve it for sure. But God is trying to speak in here saying, you don't get to make my conclusions for me. Because in your world, in your conclusion, you realize, well, my, my guilt can be forgiven, but I'll never be fully reinstated. That is shame. And friends, if we don't believe that we will be fully reinstated, that we will be fully reconciled as all of our fathers and grandfathers read earlier, then we will do the work to try to make up all of this with our performance and our deeds. And if that shame is not healed, then I will add to the gospel that my salvation is Jesus's work and my work together. From what we just learned, that can't be just merely forgiven. It must be healed. But remember, I told you there's two ways for shame to be healed and only revealed one. First, know the good, the bad, and accept me regardless. Second, get this. Modern psychology is telling us that the second way we break off shame is not to just accept the shame carrier, but celebrate them. Stump's words, not mine. Celebrate the shame carrier. And that is what will heal the shame. Anybody else grateful modern, modern psychology is catching up to a 2,000-year parable that was told by Jesus in Luke 15? Because if that's the case, this father's about to put on a clinic in what celebration needs to look like. Let's just go to the next verse. But the father said to his servants, quick, this is his quick reaction. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and what? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, not the servant, not the slave, the son, and he was lost and is found. So they began to what? Celebrate. They began to celebrate. I mean, speaking of Father's Day, ESPN. Can I just say I love ESPN? Hope you all get to watch a little bit of that today. But about 10 years ago, I was watching highlights late one night, and I thought it was interesting that on a highlight reel, they put, they put a foul ball at a Philadelphia Phillies game. And the reason was the crowd responded with, ooh, oh. So they went back to show you why the crowd responded two different ways to a foul ball. The first reason was because the foul ball, a guy stood up and caught it barehanded. Crowd went, whoo. What they did not see was his seven-year-old daughter was right here. And he leaned down and he gave it to her. And she grabbed it and went and threw it off the rail. <laughs> and the crowd went, oh, you can just see people in the front row like. <coughs> it was terrible. And immediately, this dad shocks the world because he goes, oh, and he just reaches down, he just grabs her and picks her up like she had just hit a home run. You wanted to go, oh no, she threw the ball back. <laughs> and he's just hugging her and he's hugging her and he sits down and he's got to play with her head and he's just kind of there with her and it's all fine. And people around are crying like, we'll never get that ball again. <laughs> and they're just like hugging and having this moment. The announcer goes on and on about it. A couple days later, I wanted to watch it again. Wasn't hard to find because it's gone viral. With thousands and thousands of people making comments that could all be summed up in this, wish that guy was my dad. 
Because we're all wondering, God, we know you might love us when I'm doing well, but I'm wondering, what do you think about me when I throw the ball back? This guy goes, natural instinct is not detachment. Natural instinct is to come close. I mean, they sent like news trucks. There were news stations coming to capture this guy's story. The Phillies came by to give him more foul balls. I mean, like this like took off and went wild. But the reason that we even ooh and all about that story is because for some of us, what we have done is we have reduced the gospel to this. We've reduced the gospel to Jesus had to die for our sins. Do we have that? Jesus had to die for our sins. And that is, that is true. But this does not tell me, this gospel does not tell me if he actually enjoys me today. It doesn't tell me if I'm the dinner guest, he's ready to go, or if he wants me to stick around and do a road trip. In other words, you can be forgiven and not liked. And this gospel only tells part of the story, but if this is the gospel you live in, we'll know it because you'll thank God for your forgiveness. You'll be thanking God you're not going to hell. And then you will live a life of sacrifice to try to make up what you believe you owe him. Here's what's complicated. All that's right and true. You did need a savior. Someone had to die for you. Jesus chose to be that one. And forgiveness is a gift, not one we deserve. It is a gift of God. And then because of that grace, we are saved. But this is not what you just all stood up, man, and read for me. Let me just remind you what you read. And as we wrap up here, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me read it in the Amplified to get some of the Greek words in there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he's a new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things the previous moral and spiritual condition, have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings a new life. But all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, making us acceptable to him. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. There it is, forgiveness, but canceling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation that is restoration to favor with God. So forgiveness clears your debt, but reconciliation actually means, means to restore friendship, to offer unconditional closeness. So if your gospel only offers a gospel of forgiveness, you are missing the story. Because Jesus never said, I'm here to save you from your sins so you can go to heaven. If he did, he would just get y'all saved and kill you. Then you go to heaven. He's like, no, while you're here, I want unconditional closeness with you. That's the gospel you've been invited into. So part five of the gospel that I hope you will all get is this, that I have not just been forgiven, I have been reconciled. I have been offered restored friendship, unconditional closeness. That is the gospel story. See, forgiveness takes you back to Genesis 3 in the fall, but reconciliation takes you back even further to that walk in the garden in the cool of the day. So dads, listen. Go home and initiate with your kids. Text them, call them, take them to lunch. Send them flowers, take them on dates, tell them they're awesome, and celebrate them. Granddads, help babysit so the your kids can go on a date night. Give them money for a vacation. In, in, initiate with them and celebrate. And when you initiate, when you celebrate, 
you are actually being a picture of the gospel in your home. But dads, lean in even more. Maybe the goal is not for you today to leave and to try to go out there and be a better father. Maybe it's for you to go out there and be a more loved son and live in this gospel. Preach it to yourself every day. Not just forgiven, reconciled. Stand together.